A word to the wise. We are an explicit podcast tackling choicey adult themes as well as entering spoiler territory if you aren't caught up with us. This week we are reading through chapter 32 of the Red Rising Saga's second book, Golden Sun by Pierce Brown. It's a fun chapter. It's a fun, fun little book. I think I'm just going to go ahead and start uh, start my review right now without Crossland because uh, I deserve to do this on my own. So, uh, no, I'm not. I'm not going to do that. Let's get crossing here. Hey there, this is Cross. And I'm PJ. And we are Words and Whiskey, contrary to PJ's belief. This is a podcast for veteran and novice readers alike. It doesn't we tackle fiction it could novels. Could just be novice. Could just be me. <laughs> and love to talk about what we're drinking. You can think of us as your drunk weekly book club. One of these days, I'm not going to tell you what day we're recording, and I'm just going to do it without you and see how it goes. I don't think it'll be good, but it'll be something. I wonder how far you'd make it without our script. <laughs> oh, I'd still use the script that you write for us. And by script, I mean, like, writing prompts. It's not really a script. <laughs> but Bullet point outlines, yeah. yeah. But you Keep know. us on track because we lose focus quite easily. Yeah, no, it would be dog shit and no one would listen to it. So, shut up, Crossland. Stop interrupting me uh as i said before chapters 25 through 32 of part three but uh before we do that <laughs> let's talk about what we're drinking um so pj what are you having so i made an experiment i made an experiment on my liquor shelf and uh it is bullet rye in a small quarter liter bottle probably something like that with some dehydrated oranges a clove and a stick of cinnamon and i let that sit there for like a week and uh just by the smell of it, it is it's gonna be a spicy boy. There's a lot of there's a lot of smells coming off of this thing. I think the clove <laughs> went kind of ham. So have you not tried it yet? I haven't tasted it yet. No. Oh yeah, give give it a sip. Let us know right. how it tastes. <laughs> right. We got we got to figure out if it's good or not. Oh man, the orange comes through a lot. It falls off completely though. It doesn't have any sort of linger like rye tends to. Rye is kind of hidden. It just kind of tastes like orange and cinnamon and smells like cloves. <laughs> Weird. And then there's an alcohol burn. So it's okay, probably not worth the wait. <laughs> well, that is that is certainly a review. I think if hmm. I made an old-fashioned out of this, it'd be good. A little bit more sweetness to it. and Yeah, like you can balance it out. You can yeah. totally balance it out. What are you following that up with? I have a can of Verbal Tip from Falling Knife. It's a hazy IPA with mosaic and citra. And I think I slobbed all over the knob of falling knife a couple episodes ago so i'm uh not gonna go back into that again but they're great now what have you got so i am having a completely original cocktail so as a, as a note i did receive a gift this year for christmas in addition we posted on instagram and everything else um, i got a cocktail book among other things and i felt kind of inspired so i went ahead and i've like pre-made a couple of different liqueurs to mix into things over time, they generally need a little bit longer in terms of aging. So to like rapidly age something so I could do something cool for the podcast, I made a chili liqueur, which is tequila and poblanos generally, and you kind of let it age and sit for you know, up to two weeks to kind of soak mm -hmm. in that to kind of give it the poblano taste. You de the poblanos, of course, in a reposado white tequila, which means one-year-old. Anyway, 
just a bunch of stupid terms that I've learned. Basically, I made a, an original drink with uh, each rum, this chili liqueur that I made, and one ounce of simple syrup in an orange squeezed and twisted with a big icy boy. Calling it a high red to uh, to go against the low red because this one is a lot classier. It is. And boy, oh fucking boy, is it delicious. I, I it like sounds really cannot. good. I, I want to make that. It's good. So the key is definitely getting a good rum. Okay. Not using a white rum, but I'm using a, a barrel aged rum for, you know, two year. It, get, it gets a little bit, you know, it gets a little bit more of the complexity as opposed to the like forced fake spiciness. What tequila did you use? If you don't mind me asking. Just Camarena or whatever it's called. Okay. Yeah. It's good. Good tequila. It's out of Jalisco. Jalisco. But yeah. So the drink is amazing. I'm following that up with a tropical Kush India IPA from Sycamore. Seven percenter, just solid beer. Made in Charlotte, North Carolina. So very good. Good deal. All righty. Well, that wraps up the drinks, I think. Yeah, I feel like I have to sneeze for some reason. Jeez. Well, go ahead. <coughs> Let that bastard out. Woo. Okay. So that definitely wraps up the drinks. Um, so we're going to move into last week's predictions, our little lightning round. Three that we'll talk about this week that came up. So we'll start with the first one. Will things change now that Severo knows about Darrow? And you said Darrow is going to conspire to make plans with him going forward. We decided kind of to just pay this one off now because it was a stupid-ish question. I mean, it's not stupid, right? It's a, it's a good question. But out of all of the howlers, Severo is the most committed. Yeah. He kind of proved that throughout the section. So I don't feel like that's maybe... I mean, do you feel like it's going to change? No. No. I not for so. Severo. Right. Okay. All right, so I'm gonna I'm gonna take my drink for that one. Okay. All right, very good. So good work on that prediction there. Ooh, it burns a little bit. Oh, so good. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> um, at what point does Roke confront Darrow, or does Darrow confront Roke? Was a questioner from last week as well. Um, you said Darrow confronts Roke. You were, in fact, incorrect. I Roke was does confront Darrow. Wrong. First, talking with him on the bridge. <sighs> In the middle of this part. Mm. I have a bottle of simple syrup right there. I'm going to grab that real quick. <laughs> okay. I'm going to put a couple <laughs> drops of simple syrup in this thing. Because I think that'll help it. <laughs> Doctor the drink up a little bit. Okay. Yeah, let you, All right. Let's see. Let you finish. Yeah. That actually brings out the rye a little bit too. Interestingly. But I'll do some experimenting. And probably cool. get it back on the show at some point. Anyway. I took a drink. Sounds good. Number three is Ganymede is a rim moon mentioned at the beginning of the next section. Do you think we head to the rim soon? And if so, do you think we might see Lorne again? You said. I said that he would, for the sake of time, probably just send some of the less trustworthy howlers. And nope, he's there. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much this entire bit takes place here in the rim. Yep. Gave himself a good rim job right there. Ooh. Ooh, well, big mistake. Uh, you owe us yeah, a drink. Yeah, this is a big mistake. Don't do that to yourself. <laughs> um, sorry. Yeah, I'll drink. All right. Better for that one. <laughs> <coughs> Insulting our lower intellects. Just kidding. Mm, um, no, we love our lower intellects. <laughs> Jesus. Okay. With that, let's get into chapters 25 through 32. So we are in part three, Conquer, which we talked about previously. Chapter 25. Traitors. So uh, there's a lot of politicking right away in the beginning, and I really kind of like it and appreciate it. And I like specifically how this scene kind of slows down and and Mustang really kind of sa- 
like becomes the center stage when she walks in, kind of throwing her apple every time she like takes a bite to interrupt Pliny speaking. I'm going to interrupt you right now because I have a question that pertains yes. to Praetors, the mm-hmm. name of the chapter. Uh, I don't know if this was explained and I just missed it or if it's a term that is used and I don't know it outside of this book. But what is a Praetor and how are they designated that? So it is it is a Roman term, of course, because everything is Roman. Okay. But praetors are the people who roll up ultimately underneath the arch governor or lord or anyone. They're kind of like generals. They were they're made out to be the marshals of a house. You know, it, praetors were like being a praetor of a fleet was a big deal previously. Right. Like yeah. that was a big deal in Red, in Red Rising, the first book. Yeah, but it never explained what it meant or I missed it. I probably <laughs> it's like, missed it. It's like a higher vassal. So like a vassal would be like a lower class and working your way up to like Praetor is like you yourself are a leader. Think of like the Knights of the Round Table. In terms of history, mm-hmm. Praetor are Roman magistrates that rank below council. Okay. Okay. So uh, specifically though, like reacting to Pliny is very interesting here in the way that she kind of like continues to cut him off because he's a soft-bellied pixie and a piece of shit mm-hmm. and yep. should be admonished as such. So, you know. Yeah, he's a pretty, pretty sneaky, snaky like. Also, (laughs) sneaky, snaky. Some kindergarten rhyme (laughs) bullshit up in here. Jesus. The Telemannus presence here is also great. uh, And it's nice to get to know Cavix and Daxo a bit more than just kind of being introduced to them in a rush of violence, which has been kind of the previous state of being. Mm -hmm. Even seeing them under Nero and kind of within his presence moderates them, of course. But I also like how they call, you know, him a pixie. Yeah, I do love everything about Cavix throughout <laughs> throughout this entire ch- like chunk, like everything that I learn about him. First of all, like calling someone a pixie, and then immediately going into like coddling and like cooing towards his pet fox and feeding it jelly fucking jelly beans. <laughs> it's, I mean, I don't know necessarily what the incumbent. Like how how far encompassing the term pixie is within this society, but like that feels that feels like a pixie move. <laughs> I feel pixie like he's just taking have. care of a caring a taking care of a pet. It's I think not just taking care of a pet. Think about the lady that carries around her Pomeranian in her purse and feeds it like I don't know Werther's Originals or something. Let it's, let the old crazy man be happy to have this <laughs> fox, you know. <laughs> Oh, he I literally shouts don't, don't get this, me wrong. I love it. But this pixie talk chaff, chafes my balls and chafes my balls. Like, it's just so good. I just, just I love shouts it. I love him. I'm sure we'll get more into him later. But man. yeah, totally. He's a he's a he's a funny dude and getting introduced to him and Daxo as well. Daxo being a smarter, you know, obviously like not a hundred and thousand years old version of him um a little bit more conniving in that way but still kind of warm in a way that a lot of other golds aren't yeah is this where the description of cavex is being like shaved head and dyed red beard no that was previous that that was was previous yeah yep okay so he's just completely contrary to like the the typical fashions of of gold society in that sense yeah definitely he is totally totally contrary in in just about everything that he does and every way that he acts too so it Mm -hmm. totally fits yeah um 
<clears throat> so, yeah, finally, after a lot of conversations all over the place about the ill likelihood of gaining allies from the Moon Lords, Darrow reveals a grand plan to steal all the ships from them and force them into, <laughs> into being allies through abducting all of their children. It's it's bold. I'll give him that. <laughs> it's a bold one. It's, uh, it's a bold move, Cotton. We'll see if it pays off. Yeah, it may be a little, a little rash. We'll see. But knowing Darrow, he's got a plan. But I can only imagine, like, looking around that room after he says that and just seeing the jaws hit the table and, like, not knowing how to respond. Because that's mm-hmm. some, that's some m- maniacal shit right there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's it's an absolutely crazy. It truly is, like you said, a crazy plan to take advantage. Everyone calls him insane. But and, Matt, uh, like, think think about his sort of winning move in the Institute to go take Olympus. Mm-hmm. Like that was the same sort of reaction. Yep. But he's he's got a track record to kind of prove himself. Right. Right. He's he's done this. You know, it's not out of reach. It's not completely out of the question. And that's why, you know, Nero admires him so and like smiles and is like, we're definitely going with this plan, especially in the next chapter. But we'll, we'll get to that in a second. I think it's interesting to just mention Pliny right now um, with a with a quote in this chapter that reminds me specifically of the character that I find him most akin to at, in other fiction, which is he reminds me of a more snivelly little finger <laughs> from Game <laughs> of Thrones, like a little whelp. You had yeah. made mention of this, the quote, like, how did you come to know this information? And then Darrow responds, little birds whispered into my whisper into my ear, too. And that literally feels like it was pulled straight from Game of Thrones. I know that the I mean, little birds well, thing isn't yeah. from Littlefinger, uh, but like it it feels he, he just feels like a shittier version of Littlefinger. He does. It's completely true. And I don't I don't mean shitty in the way where he's written poorly. I mean, shitty in the way that his character is a piece of shit. <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, yeah. he's a great character, but mm-hmm. art, utter garbage, and I want to burn his mattress with him on it. <laughs> That's oddly specific. I'm a little afraid. <sighs> you should be. I know where your mattress is. <laughs> Fuck. Okay, so uh, with that, uh, <laughs> chapter 26, I've been threatened. I'm calling the police. <laughs> you know, I think it's funny out of the gate to uh, right with Pliny right away. Sort of this chapter seems to be playing right into Darrow and the Sons of Ares hands, you know, like he literally calls out basically what Darrow is trying to accomplish. Yeah. Um, this will fracture everything. <laughs> like he literally says it out loud. <laughs> yes. Yes, it will. Yes, it will. Pliny. Yep. That, that is actually the point. You're right. Pliny. Mm-hmm. Good call. Yep. Good call. I will fracture everything. These people are misled into believing that it will help them. In reality, I will seize the moment and become uh, a different god king. <laughs> Wait, what? No. Mm, no. Maybe not. Mm, yeah. Yeah. You think so? I like, th- I like that idea. Darrow's going god to become king a corrupted, Darrow. like, power-hungry madman. It <laughs> will completely <laughs> abandon his, uh, his goals. His goals. Yeah, his just to take goals. down society. Like, he'll, he'll maintain his goals of conquering society but the goals of overturning it and killing it no he's just gonna sovereign darrow yeah it's it's really interesting i really like the kind of premonition and and the dramatic irony that we get from it just you know just to be clear like i do not believe that's what will happen (laughs) (laughs) it would be kind of insane wouldn't it though it'd be get into kind of what lauren was saying it'd be a fun dream sequence for the uh (laughs) for the tv show to go on like a three three episode long dream sequence of him conquering society 
You know, my favorite TV show has two incredible dream quest dream sequences, and I could I could see that being real. Which ones? Both of the dream sequences and dream quest sequences are in The Leftovers in season two and season three. Okay. Episode eight and episode four. Yeah, I think it's four. Dude, it's my favorite TV show. There's only like I've 28 never, episodes. I've never heard of it. I don't think you've ever mentioned what? it to me. What? The Leftovers is my... Okay, anyway, we're going to move on before I riot. Um, we'll talk about <laughs> it later. So I really like the little argument that also happens here between Mustang and her father. I think it carries a lot of weight in the way that, you know, he still, even though she acted, doesn't see or understand what she's done or why she's doing it. And literally, she's responsible for saving 100% of them in this room and doesn't command any respect for it. Mm-hmm. It's that, like, fake meritocracy that exists. Yeah. Yeah. Just kind of a comment on meritocracy in general. It's complete bullshit in pretty much every single, like, instance that it's ever been, like, had, right? Like, I, I can't think of an actual meritocracy that wasn't just kind of a, a facade to make everyone feel better about being in an authoritarian rule. Oh yeah. 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 I was, I thought you were going to relate it back to the story. Like, Oh no, just that. in general, like ha, do you have any examples like in fiction or in history of an actual meritocracy? Um, no, I feel like meritocracy to some degree is what leads to a lot of dystopian ideals. You know, if you think about like, the origins that are kind of loosely hinted at with brave new world in wherein like the clone society was established or even here, you know, meritocracy is sort of the establishment specifically for golds, but the rest of society is not a meritocracy there. It's, it's kind of an autocracy. Well, it's they're, they're, it's, it's not even a meritocracy for golds though. Like that's a complete right. bullshit as well. Like it, it's, it's all fake. <laughs> Yeah, meritocracy in big quotation marks. Big old quotation marks. Right. Yeah. So I'm going to do some studying and see if that's ever actually been a thing in any sort of work of fiction where it doesn't devolve into um, dystopian <laughs> futures or like fake merit-based rule. Yeah, totally. We'll see. I'll, I'll report back with my findings. That, uh, okay, I'm in. Right. I'm in. Right. I'm in to uh, hear more about your meritocracy research you do. Okay. Mm-hmm. So following that up, like immediately afterwards, <laughs> though, she finally, no, I mean, it's, it's a good thing to talk about. Following that up immediately afterwards, though, is this interesting conversation where she basically pulls back the power due to that lack of respect. You know, like he goes so far as to like call her a whore at some point here, right? Like it's literally so crazy that he like runs down that channel of thought. But Darrow basically comments after she pulls back that power and that authority, his love is the most conditional I've ever seen. How quickly he can call his daughter a whore, then smile as she reclaims what power she lost in the world. Yeah. You know? He really doesn't treat her like a daughter. He re- he kind of treats her like a soldier or a subject of some sort. And much, much like the Sith, he deals strictly in absolutes. <laughs> Just his condemnations and his praises for anything are to the nth degree. Like everything is amazing or like just perfect or it is dog shit. And there's there's very little in between as far as what Nero comments on. He does deal in absolutes. Maybe Nero is a Sith Lord after all. Mm-hmm. Is this Star Wars? It, it's not Star Wars. They're they're in war in space. Yeah, there's no space wizards, though. So, 
Nero's kind of a space wizard. I mean, filling someone's head with grapes is not space <laughs> wizardry. It's just pain. No, but okay. floating floating down from the sky and hanging a girl is kind of space wizardry. Yeah, I, I mean, magic isn't, is just isn't technology he who I described understand. as uh, Gandalf the Nebulous. Yes, yes, on. you did. You did describe him as I, Gandalf I think, the Nebula. I think it was him specifically. Space yep. wizard. Loading down. Yeah, it's it's crazy interesting. And then the way that Augustus is just sort of like claims the power in the room thereafter again, kind of just like his daughter had before. He declares that Darrow's plan is the best and that that's the one that they should go with because he doesn't want to run away like a pixie, like the pixie was suggesting. It's kind of like he draws the air out of the room and into the vacuum of space here. Everyone goes so like quiet and amendable and he just commands so much authority it's just it's great yeah and i mean the the writing itself is beautiful but my favorite within that section is the description of what pliny is like looking like and acting like looking quote like watching a child try to hold on to a handful of sand just frustration and not quite able to understand why it's not working for him just futile i guess mm-hmm. yeah like he just absolutely Satisfying cannot, cannot go against anything that darrow's saying at this mm. point it's nice to see that reversal over these you know 100 or 200 pages mm-hmm. exactly so darrow's conversation with augustus post their decision feels very very aggressive at first leaning into trust and the certainty of darrow's position you know i feel like we're back to walking that very thin line tight you know stepping on the tightrope will he be found out for you know a second again what do you get out of it um so what i sort of really gleaned from that section was that augustus was is Entirely, and I guess probably most of gold society in general is entirely aware of the position that they have put all the other lower colors into of sort of psychologically breaking them down and keeping them literally as slaves in most cases. It the sort of lies being fed to the lower colors aren't really fed to the golds like they they are completely aware of what they're doing to everybody but they're being i guess they're being told that it's for the best of everyone even though they're the ones that are benefiting so it's it it made me sort of really think about how that dynamic works but also what the vulnerabilities of that sort of way of thinking are um and maybe thinking it might be a lot easier for darrow to actually convert some of the golds into helping him kind of gave me a little bit of hope there Hmm. if that makes sense interesting like yeah yeah yeah. it's not like they're all brainwashed into thinking that everything is perfect they know that things are unjust for the lower colors but what they believe is that it's for a good reason yeah i feel like that comes even more into play with lorne than it does um nero nero i think believes in the slavery for maintaining power right um but i think especially with lorne that becomes a big deal Mm-hmm. It just it made me think of the scope of of the deception towards the lower colors and what what the golds actually thought about it. That certainly makes sense. I mean, it it does it does play into that and kind of the way that they're maintaining power and maintaining this grip over everyone. It's mm-hmm. it's certainly interesting. Right. <clears throat> we also get a bit of backstory here on Lorne as well. You know, he had four sons, three died in front of him while the fourth died in an accident as ex- 
explained from Nero. The last was Lysander's father and how now Nero's recruited him to go get Lorne to them in their quest against Octavia. Yeah, so this made me realize how wrong I was about, what, what, what was it, two episodes ago? I think it was two episodes ago. I think it was, uh, where I said that, I think my exact quote was, Lorne had willow-weighed himself into Octavius's bedchambers or something to that effect. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, it's just through marriage of their children, which is less juicy, but I guess it makes sense. It makes more sense. <clears throat> That's fair. <laughs> That's fair. I get it. So, right. yep. Yep. With that, we move into the most logically named chapter, given the whole theme of the book is abducting the cook, um, titled chapter 27, titled Jelly Beans. Yep. Uh, which is a, a great, great title. Harkens back to food and the hunger that we all feel. Um, and cooks make jelly beans. Cooks make jelly beans. Um, you're right. The the ideology <laughs> fell apart here, but we'll get back to it eventually, I swear. So <clears throat> we get a really interesting conversation in this short, short chapter with the Telemannises, um, Dexo and Cavex. You know, it's it's great to return, pick up the story, like I said earlier, and finally actually get to meet them and talk with them. Um, I had a question. I know, obviously, there, are, there aren't a whole lot of other people in this story that are similar to them, but if you had to pick out people or characters that were similar in other works of fiction, you know, who do they remind you of? Ooh. Um, okay, okay. I've got one. I don't think it works perfectly, but just thinking about how Daxo was secretly like putting jelly beans into Darrow's coat in order to like trick his father into thinking that there were like magical omens telling him good things were happening. It makes me think of Little John and sort of like the snake dude from uh, Robin Hood, like the the animated Robin Hood. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like the big bear that's Little John and then his companion who's the snake who's actually doing all the dealings. So John's not the bear. John's the lion. But. Well, yeah, yeah. Whatever it is. Like. Sir Hiss is the snake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. John. Yep. That's, that's but, interesting. So I think it's a very loose <laughs> sort of comparison, but that's my immediate read. Do you have Do you have a like comparison in your head i mean specifically we're digging for in that question no i i'm not i'm not i'm just asking you know the the question in general um i think i think it's an interesting thing to think about just because i think they're kind of a unique character type but personally to me cavax kind of has like a hagrid quality to him okay from from harry potter so like just kind of big warm welcoming not always the the smartest or the most on top of things but definitely loyal uh, I don't fault. know if I agree with that. He seems to be the one who's truly in charge, even though he silently, like he's silently in charge of the Talamonuses because of his like ways of sort of tricking his father into seeing omens. Oh, I'm seeing Cavix, not not Daxo. You said I think you said Daxo. Oh yeah, I meant I meant Cavix. Yeah. Is uh, okay, okay. Is Hagrid? I might have yeah, misheard yeah. you, but I'm pretty sure you said Daxo. So <coughs> never mind. We're, no, Daxo is definitely playing at larger ambitions. You know, we know that he's roughly um, the age of Carnus. Yeah, because they were in the Institute together. But do you think he's using his father's like condition to his own advantage a little bit? That's, I don't know. Do you think he's the, using? That's kind of the read I got on it. Do you, do you think he's using his father? Yeah, maybe. Oh, OK, 
but not for necessarily insidious reasons, but just for the, the well-being, knowing that his father is, I don't know if it's here where they talk about him getting hit on the head a bunch of times in his youth, but like, he's clearly not like with it. (laughs) Yeah. He's definitely been incapacitated. Yeah. So Daxo, upon leaving this conversation, like, pops it i think he like pops a couple jelly beans into his mouth and like winks at darrow to sort of show him like that yeah that's where the jelly beans came from in your in your pocket was him he's completely in control of what his father thinks because he's in in control of whether or not the fox finds jelly beans magically in people's pockets interesting so you're going full mind control i see where you're getting a little down the snake from now not well but yes yes that's what i'm talking about that's that's sort of okay. why I came to that sort of thought process. Interesting, interesting. Hmm. Okay, I'm in. So <clears throat> that's uh, that's an interesting perspective for sure. They also make a promise, which I think is a big deal, to be available to the Reaper for honor in Pax's death. The honor, you know, their family feels to him, given everything that you know Darrow did for him and everything you know Pax did for him. You know, naming the ship—it's no small feat. Everything else, you know. He's, he's made it a big deal. Pax is a big deal, a part of his claim at the Institute and everywhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, so the quote is, so if you need us, you need merely ask and the House Telemannus will lend itself to your cause. So my question for you is, do you think that they would really lend themselves to Darrow's true cause? And obviously they've got a slightly different impression as to what Darrow's cause is in the first place. So you mean like his true, his true like red cause, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. I know a way it could absolutely happen. And here, is it the jelly beans? It, it involves jelly beans, yes. No. Um, we get a Ouija board, and Darrow just kind of sprinkles some jelly bean dust on the word yes and tells them what's going on and then lets Sophocles look at the Ouija board. Clearly, he's going to sniff yes, and Cavix will be like, yep, that's a fucking sign. We're in. Oh, no. pj's got full conspiracy (laughs) you've you know this about me that's absolutely what i do so i love love finding conspiracy theories and things so uh is that is that what you think would happen do you Uh, think that morally they'd lend themselves to the cause okay so i'm finding more and more that i really don't understand well enough the indoctrination of gold's and what they think of the lower colors. So I, I don't think I'm really prepared to answer that question. And I think I would have been like a section ago. Hmm. But I, I think that there's there's just too much sort of uncertainty around what people actually think is going on in society. That um, I, I, I'm leaning towards more than Darrow realizes would be on his side. But also, I don't think Darrow would be so bold as to ask an entire house for help with something like that unless really backed into a corner out of fear of basically like impaling himself with this question. Yeah, no, I know that doesn't really point. answer the question, but no, but I, I think it's I think it's a good call out. Like you, like you said, like a week ago, you could have very cleanly made the call. But this week, it feels very uncertain because you have two different perspectives a week ago you probably would have said no all the golds are against yeah that exactly yeah yeah but we do get like a little bit of knowledge of like nero's kind of disgusted with mustang because she was working with reformers um we get like the term reformer for the first time here which is a big deal democrat democrat yes 
Mm-hmm. Yes. By the way, I did find out the reason for that spelling. You ready to, for me to correct myself from like a fucking 12 episodes ago? What, was that book one? Yeah, it was book one. It was like literally chapter one or two. Okay. Or not chapter one or two, but episode one or two. Um, Democrat with a K is that way because that's how it was originally spelled in Greek hmm. or Roman. Roman. Interesting. I Roman guess that Greek. makes sense, though. Whichever one. But yes, so it was originally spelled spelt that way. Okay. Good to know. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's where it comes from. What was your answer? I think you gave some bullshit answer of, I don't know, it just is. Like that. <laughs> that's No, I think I was talking about why it was capitalized. And I was like, it oh, just is. Oh, we did ask about capitalization, yeah. didn't we? Yep. Okay. Yep. Yeah, so it was it was more specifically about the K and the capitalization. And I was like, I don't know, the K is capitalized. And Which, I was like, it's spelled I mean, different. I found some miscapitalizations in this section of the book, so maybe it was a mistake anyway. It is also the only time that that happens, but I feel like it was originally done intentionally. So, okay. Um, it's the only time the K is capitalized in the word. I did look through all of the text in all of the books to find that out. Hmm. So that's uh, that's our random catch up with previous episodes and correction bit. Yay. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, and then we finally catch up with Roke um, without the specter of Quinn because he specifically says he doesn't want to talk about it. And that relationship still feels very bitter. Uh, why wouldn't it, though? There's been no resolution to anything. Like, there's, Darrow's technically apologized for drugging him and given kind of a half-assed answer of, I... I didn't want you caught up in all of this, but like there hasn't really been a true resolution to that, which is a big fucking stain on their friendship right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I think it only ma- makes sense to be tense. And on top of that, Roke as a direct response to Darrow's actions lost Quinn, which is uh, the second Love of his life that he's lost as a direct result to Darrow's actions, I think. Oof. <laughs> Bringing up Leah, aren't we? Yep. Love of his life, I guess, is uh, a little bit overstated. But, you know. Like, I mean, for Roke, it's probably that way. I mean, it probably yeah. is overstated. Yeah, for most He was people, like 16, the, so, you know. Roke's like the poet, though. So, you know, he yeah. takes it kind of seriously. Mm-hmm. Self-serious about the whole thing. I mean, think about it this way. This pain will further his poet poetic career. Like, Wow, is that how we want to look at the death of Quinn? Is that really what we want to <laughs> sink our teeth into? Uh, yes. Yep. I'm, I am standing by that. Quinn's death <laughs> I think, was intentional in order to make Roke a better poet. Oof. Oof. Aja just got like serious points. For making a big deal out of that mm-hmm. to improve the poetry long term. Rope now, should really I, thank Aja for that. Like, he's going to get so many book deals. So many <laughs> book deals. Because we <laughs> know that books still exist. Collection of poems. <laughs> yeah. No, it's it's definitely... I, I agree with you. I think there's no reason for him not to feel bitter. I think that... The other side of this coin is also he like either of them could have bent towards forgiveness, but neither of them. Darrow is too preoccupied in other things to lean that way. And Roke is 
should not necessarily be the forgiving one in this instance. No, he's typically been the one to go out of his way to help for help Darrow. You know, like he was literally going to buy him out of his out of his servitude. So, I mean, yeah, Hmm. Darrow's got to put some love into the relationship, man. Else it's all going to fall. Yep, he does. Yeah. Fuck. But I think that's that's something he's kind of been coming to the realization of um, throughout this entire section. And we get into it a little bit later with Tactus, but um, I think he's really starting to realize that he is intentionally, I, I think intentionally distancing himself from his friends as a means of not being so hurt or so clouded by emotions later on when he will ultimately be turning on everybody. Um, and I think at the same time, he's also realizing that like with, with Severo knowing and not abandoning him or not turning against him, I think he's starting to think that maybe it's not as big of a prospect to sort of enlist some of these friends for his goal. Yeah, I <clears throat> I think it's apt to talk about it now because I think that this is one of the many introductions that have made, been made over the course of the story. But the theme really here, especially in this group of chapters early on in the book and everything else, is sort of trust and like the cost of lies, you know? Like it's, it's both of those things. So... Darrow uh, not being able to trust people. That is, Go ahead. that is almost exactly the end line for the first monologue of Chernobyl. Uh, <laughs> it might be. It very what is, well. What is the cost of lies? Uh, damn it! I'm a I'm a worshiper of Craig Mazin, so it probably just came out of my mouth because <laughs> I've I've list, I've watched that episode like three or four times. Dude, um, I've, I've watched that entire series so many fucking times. Like that is so. I've good. said it. I've said it. To anybody who's listened to me about it, that is my favorite piece of media ever. Is the it's Chernobyl miniseries? It's uh, it's damn good. Cannot cannot disagree. Definitely up there. But yeah, so I I but I do think that's a theme here. And I went with the cost of lies as opposed to the the like price of lies or anything else. You know what he loses by lying because I think it makes sense, especially as like they start to talk later into the concept of basically spending his friends for his victories in a way you know yeah and that becomes more specific and, and elaborated on later with tactus um and roke brings it up again and is talking about it specifically and mustang speaks to it as well and we've also have this through line of trust where severo knows and it takes all of darrow to finally break down otherwise he might get beheaded by severo you know might just kill him on the fucking spot there are some high fucking tensions in this society like this would be exhausting I'm I'd really want to be a blue, I think <laughs> just numb and in the network. Yeah, <laughs> that's uh, that's fair. It's fair. Uh, like, I think everything we'll do... else sounds so exhausting. Yeah, I you know, it does. It does seem like a lot. I think part of that is obviously because we're inhibiting or inhabiting. Uh, we're inhibited from other perspectives and we're inhabiting Darrow's perspective, which is this duality problem of secret self versus present self so it, mm, it's also yeah. that double-edged sword so mm. uh from there we move on we'll talk more about that theme a little bit later but we move into chapter 28 the storm suns yes right off the bat the picture of gravity 
on the moon of Europa is just fascinating at 0.136% of Earth's. You're like literally having to keep themselves down and walk so lightly so as to not bounce themselves off into right. the stratosphere. So this, that line is when, when he mentions like having to use his grav boots in order to um, sort of be in control of his walking, maybe actually understand, I think, what grav boots do because in every other description of them, I've imagined them as like Iron Man's boots with like rockets coming off of them. So we could like go like go high. But if it's something more like uh, an isolated gravitational field and like something that affects the way gravity works on whoever's wearing it, that makes so much more sense. Like thinking about later on when Severo and the Howlers are silently gliding through the air from the lake because they're wearing grav boots. Like they wouldn't be silent if it was like jet thrusters. So I I don't know if I'm unique in thinking that it was a lot less sort of sci-fi than it actually is, but it was kind of a cool revelation of that sort of bit of technology. Something that I find, I totally agree with you. And I, I really agree with sort of the read on the grab boots, of course. I think what's really interesting is one of the like core tenets of writing a story is obviously to show, not tell, right? Mm-hmm. So you want to show what something could do as opposed to reading off a description of exactly how a bullet fires from the gun that you're looking at, right? So while... One can be interesting. One is more interesting to more people. So it's the better read on how to do it and showing it in action. I think that argument or that sort of way of thinking falls apart a little bit when you're specifically talking about technology and sci-fi. So because hmm. it's so different and you're dealing with alternate forms of like alternate evolutions of technology in general, you kind of need a little bit more description. Like I'll go back to the first section of red rising where yeah, we I all agree the so first, the more, first 50 pages well, yeah. are tough, but, but specifically I want so much more description of what a claw drill looks like as mm-hmm. opposed to just what it does. Yep. What, it, what I'm also saying though, PJ is that like you can describe good things through description like yeah. this, wherein you understand where it comes from mm-hmm. without just telling and that's the tough part, right? Is like right. threading threading that needle um, and, and trying to figure out exactly how you manage that without just info dumping, which I would argue like the first 50 pages of Red Dot Rising are also mostly info dumping, although not on the the science of it, you right. know? Like yeah. they're very they're very telly and showy in two different ways, but not in not in the perfect or correct ways. But yeah, yeah, I agree with you, obviously, like it, this does make it feel more more like it's less like it's Iron Man boots and more like it's something else. The only other description that I think gets you closer to that as well so far, of course, is the proctors moving silently over the snow and the way that the snow moved left trails. But it was like the trails were springing upwards and around something. Yeah. So it was like the snow was following or getting getting caught in the gravitational pull. And so they were watching that kind of moving over i also think that that these are things that you definitely catch in a more in-depth slower read but yeah i I think that that is the toughest part of really good writing you can do it you can do it both ways either ways can be very effective 
the the other rule of writing is that no there's no rules to writing like you just need to kind of you probably need to conventionally follow these rules unless you're so good that like whatever the rules don't count for you but that's also the trap (laughs) so Mm -hmm. yeah i i think that it does a great job and i also think that this book in general starts to do a much better job of describing everything and upping the stakes in different ways and creating a larger wider universe more easily right yeah i i love it and i think that that goes into the way that this world feels right with like the giant massive waves the storm suns which are these people that go out it's just it's brilliant brilliant storytelling mm-hmm. yeah yeah it is and really left a lot of imagery in a very short period of time with the storm suns specifically yeah in particular like they they say that like when they die out there in a storm like it's their wails that you hear but i think it's the cries of their mothers and i just that line alone is like haunting inside of that that little like tale that lauren tells and it's it's so interesting because i also think it gets back to the discordia thing that i'll talk about in a second but yeah i i also love the picture that we finally see painted of lauren here too you know our, our prime or soup du jour storyteller and kind of the full breadth of his character yeah i really like as you were saying earlier we get perspective on lauren's perspective on the society and i like this first intro that darrow provides if all golds were like him reds would still toil beneath the earth but he would have them know their purpose doesn't make him good but it makes him true yeah he we i think we've discussed before i don't know for sure if we've talked about it on air um but like Lorne is Marcus Aurelius and he is so principled about it. Mm-hmm. Like he, he is so true. Like he, he preaches what he does. Like he, he is what he believes in. Um, and it, it's really honorable to see that sort of character that is not infallible, but true to his flaws. And has reasons for his flaws, I guess. I think what's very interesting, we've obviously mentioned Marcus Aurelius. And for those of you who don't know um, that much more about him, I don't want to dig into it too much. I could talk about it forever. Crossland will talk about it forever. Forever. He has to me. And like, it's interesting and it's great. But like, if you don't stop him and distract him with like, I don't know, fucking pizza or something like he will continue on. Forever, forever and ever so if, if you ever want to get into a uh, discussion about stoicism or marcus aurelius just hit me on twitter just hit us on twitter and crossland will info dump you so the the quote that i wanted to go back to was waste no more time arguing what a good man should be be one is a core like marcus aurelius concept which i think really kind of also embodies the character with which Lorne is right like he doesn't he doesn't just say it he just is and i think that's what you're trying to get to the heart of here yeah it isn't that he just like practices what he preaches he is a model because of what he practices yeah other people will preach about the life of Lorne, like they do about the life of marcus aurelius or yeah. about the writings of Marcus Aurelius. I have no idea what his life was like. Right, right. His life was a little bit different. He was kind of, <laughs> I mean, he he did he did some other things. He wasn't entirely a piece of shit, but he, he is known for one of the biggest Christian genocides of all time. Mm. So, Like genocides of Christians or? Genocides of Christians, yes. Or Christian-based yeah. genocide. <laughs> no. Against Christians. Um, okay. Because both happened. 
Yeah, right. <laughs> yes, yes, both <laughs> happened. Both of them were uh, Roman both sanctioned are, as well, both which is bad. fascinating. Both are Roman. You're right. But but moving forward though, uh, with with Lorne, it is absolutely fascinating. Yeah, he's a he's a really cool character. Yeah, I'm liking Completely. that he's becoming more prominent. <clears throat> Completely love it. Completely love it. So I also love the next bit here, kind of describing, we've talked about the Storm of Suns a little bit. I love the bit here that talks about Discordia. And Discordia, to me, before I did the research here, said one very different thing. Um, and Discordia, to me, was the world between in the Stephen King universe is Discordia. It's the chaos. It's everything else. And so I did research and I was like, it's got to be exactly like that. And it isn't, but it also is like Discordia in this context is referencing the Greek and Roman God, Eris or Discordia, which is the goddess of strife or discord also associated with the goddess of war in those mythologies as well. So not or rather war goddess, not the goddess of war. Inyo or the Roman can- counterpart Bologna, which is mm, great, great so to tie in there. The Bolognas are just straight up warmongering, chaotic families, and we should be happy that we're trying to squash them. Is that what you're getting at? Yes, <laughs> yes. I think ultimately we should be happy with uh, <laughs> with squishing them. Um, well, yes, but. But it was from, it was from a moral perspective. Well, of course, the verb's coming. Of course, it is. There it is. Okay, so I I really love. You once claimed to me. You've multiple times claimed to me that you can't burp. I can't force a burp, PJ. They just happen. They're tiny. They just come up. Mm. Little bubbles. Sometimes it's vomit. Those are my options. Little bubs. Little bubs or vomit. Like if I could force a burp, I could solve a lot of problems here, PJ. Yeah. As I was saying, the, the bit about Discordia uh, is is great. And I kind of want to provide a little bit of additional context. It is there the god of the goddess of strife and discord. Discord really more meaning a sort of mischievous chaos, but still not negative. Like it's not chaos isn't negative. It's just random. It's it's without sort of. So um, I think that they are also the god of this application that we're using to talk to each other. Oh, that's funny. That's extra funny. We are talking on Discord. You lose. Um, so that was a funny joke. But yeah, so I, I do find it really interesting that they're kind of equated here. And we're seeing him amidst the sea of Discord in which the waves are washing up. And we're, we're seeing this old soldier who's been through war, who's been through strife. And the waves are calling and crashing. And it, it just all feels very very on theme as we step into the sort of the terminology here. I think one other thing that I wanted to talk about here are to, to kind of lend some, some strength to discord in the mythology around her is all of the, the names or words that are associated with her children in the Roman mythos. And just to read off the words, not the names she bore the painful son's hardship, forgetfulness, starvation, pains, battles, wars, murders, manslaughters, quarrels, lies, stories, disputes, anarchy, ruined, and oath, who most afflicts men of the earth, then willing to swear a false oath. I mean, like, it's just so, it's so interesting 
especially the the oath claim being the one of the sons and daughters of of discord wherein arcos is totally tied to his oath to society he had been for a very long time as the rage knight especially as we learned about how silas how he didn't realize all the why well he did he he came to realize over time all the lives that he was harming and all the damage he was doing and it's just it's fascinating read and well done to paint this picture of the soldier amid the sea of discordia and kind of being living in between the waves constantly in the ebb and flow and then again getting pulled into war in his retirement it's just it's brilliant writing so yeah yep for sure absolutely he is a man of his own oath his own word his word is his bond whatever you want to call it like mm-hmm. yeah i mean word is bond yes but also that word being bond being something solid being something unbreakable is where oaths become dangerous right where something like your oath to society can become corrupted over time mm-hmm. and that's that's kind of the problem that he faces yeah 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 it's it's interesting so thereafter lauren goes into a brief speech about his hands and what they've gone through from the recent birth of his great-granddaughter to all the deaths he's caused and the lives he's stolen gets back to the discordia bit it's kind of like it's all poetic brutality. Uh poetic brutality, sure, but also just fucking gross. Like he goes and shows <laughs> Darrow his hands that what? still has blood on it from his granddaughter being born the night before. Like <laughs> did he not shower in between there or like I don't know, dude, wash your fucking hands like why I think the blood smell- wasn't still there, they- but he smelled it. All right. Yes, it smelled like blood. That means he didn't effectively wash his hands. We're living That's- in a sci-fi future. They have, like, it's it's not medieval times where they just have, like, a bucket of water where they have to put their hands in, but that's also where the donkey pisses. Like, <laughs> they have whatever futuristic technology replaces soap, I'm sure. Wash your fucking hands, Lorne. That's all I'm saying. Hmm. Man. Yeah. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I think Sorry. I think you're right. Sorry to rant about that a little bit. That was I think like, it, I it, think some soap <laughs> some soap would go a long way. Yeah. <laughs> Does any part of you think Darrow might be conspiring to steal Lorne's children in these moments? You know, especially since he's like placing the mines and everything else. Uh, he, it kind of feels like he's he's planning for something. But obviously we know in the end it's something different. Do you think that there's an alternate reality where if Aja didn't show up as he thought he would, if he had to, he might abduct the children? I that had that thought never crossed my mind, honestly. Like okay. it, that idea had never shown itself at all. But also I don't think so. Um, because I don't think Darrow would have a way to leverage that against Lorne. Because basically his entire point of being here is to kind of Get Lorne into a position where he doesn't have a choice but to go along with Darrow. Where if he were to do some sort of shenanigans where he steals his children or grandchildren, all that would really do is push Lorne into joining the fight on the side of Aja and the Sovereign as a means of retaliation and getting his family back. I don't think it's Darrow's way to take a specific person's family in like as hostage obviously like he's planning on taking all of the institute's children as hostage but i think that's more Mm -hmm. of 
because it's everyone, it's not a specifically targeted hostage situation. It's more a hostage on society as it stands, as opposed to a hostage on a single person. And it's much more of a statement against society overall and less about a personal attack on a single family. I, I think that it's interesting. I was just curious in terms of if you thought that he would go that far. I think you're right, though. I think the personal attack would lead to something like a blood feud. Yeah. But interesting nonetheless to see and like think in kind of Darrow's shoes. What would Darrow do to accomplish, you know, his ends? Would he go that far? Also, don't think Darrow would win necessarily. Like, I, I don't think he'd be confident enough to do something like that and get into a physical alter- altercation with Lorne. And be confident mm-hmm. enough to know that he'd win against him in a also fair. combat. Also fair. Also true. So we we also get a lot of information here from Lorne shortly thereafter. But I think one of the most interesting things is something that we kind of talked about, um, but also his reason to like retire and retreat from society. I left society not because it is sick, but because it is dead. You know, the society that he stood for, everything else we've been talking about, this sort of floating gold ideology now that we have outside gold perspectives and lauren thought he was living fighting breathing for a very different society he kind of paints colors with a sympathetic lens here too wherein he says says that they have a role in society but now they're more like servants or slaves right he kind of implies that because the the role of the golds has really just become filling the power vacuum as opposed to everyone contributing their parts to ensure survival in the proper ways Mm -hmm. it's become corrupted so we we discussed lorne being a man of his word and sort of the word his word being his bond and all of that and i think this sort of line of thinking uh, so uh, we know he was the rage knight he was an olympic knight which presumably there were some very specific oaths that he took in order to uphold society and blah 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 whatever they are I think this sort of line of thinking is his personal justification for having given up trying to heal the society or fix it. To say that it's dead kind of gives him an out in that sense and absolves him of his duties that he vowed to uphold without breaking them. If that like does that make sense? I don't I don't know if I'm articulating it well enough, but sort of saying that it's it's not sick, it's just dead means that he has nothing to protect anymore, which means that he can abandon it and go live in isolation without technically violating the oaths that he made to the society, even though he's retired and nobody would expect him to like make really grand gestures or plans or movements to defend society, he would expect that of himself if those were the vows that he made. I don't hmm. know. I, I, I felt it less less bitter about society and more bitter about himself and trying his best to justify his actions and not feel bad about being in isolation and being secluded from the rest of society. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that it's it is kind of a, a justification, like you said, it's a roundabout way of him kind of coming to a conclusion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I also think that there's a bit of Lorne. I guess to paint it into the next question here, 
Do you still think that he could be Aries? I know you'd pose that you'd posed him as a potential option earlier on, given his ideology and everything else and what we know about him. Do you still think he could be Aries? Yes, but I think it less likely. Okay. Less likely that, that he's Aries themselves. I still think that there's potential that he's some sort of consultant for the Sons of Aries. I think that's plausible, becoming less and less likely as I think about it, but also not necessarily. Uh, I don't have a reason to believe it, but I don't have a reason not to believe it at this point either, because I'm sure that there's a way where him, like him believing that society is dead and he has nothing to uphold anymore anyway means that he could completely sort of act in a way that he thinks would most benefit the society as it stands, which, based on how he's thinking and talking, could very well be an uprising and an overturn of gold rule. Mm -hmm. But I haven't heard enough to support it from him yet. Like, I'd like to see a little bit more hostility from him towards the way golds treat the lower colors which he hasn't really touched on okay so it's it's unlikely uh it's unsure i'm unsure at this point i am i I am holding him as a possibility as especially because of his interactions with darrow before like what made me believe it before that he was the one that gave him gave the ring to the uh was it to fitchner i think it was to fitchner which which actually he also talks about but also that gives bit. some implications of did Fitchner have any sort of inkling that he was being looked at as the Rage Knight at that point if he was interacting with Lorne? Or is that simply because that they were both part of House Mars? And I think it's just a part of them yeah. both being a part of House Mars. Okay. I don't think it's much more than that. I don't know. I'm trying to find things to read into, Crossland. Stop squashing <laughs> my shit. Well, some of it's obvious. Some of it is to be read into. Yeah. I mean, you're allowed to read into whatever you like. I just feel like the text leaves it, obviously. That's not to say there aren't additional things, but I'm never going to try to spoil for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's the aim. Mm -hmm. So the next story he tells after that is the story of how Silas, which is an honestly brutal recollection of why the Bologna-Augustine feud has gone on for so long. We finally get an answer as to what happened to Nero's first wife. He married into the Bologna family after the Bologna family and how Silas... Um, agreed to purge all but Nero from the bloodline. So it was only Nero. Yeah, that was uh, short-sighted. Like, well, it was, a, that didn't end well for him. Like, yes, Nero, we also find out is an iron gold. The family Augustus are iron golds because they are the original golds left from the conquering. They have, a, they have a bloodline that runs from there. And so with that in mind, You know, it definitely was an oversight, but it seemed like the right thing to do because they didn't want to eliminate such a noble house. So they marry into the Bologna family in Iona Bologna, which Which is a (laughs) fucking hilarious name. (laughs) Oh, no. It's like a prank name. That's like a name that shows up on an Oscar Mayer commercial. Yeah. (laughs) No joke. (laughs) No joke. Um, It's it's yep. It's a whole thing in my head. Iona Bologna spelled B E L L O N A. Okay, so moving back to it though, uh, Iona Bologna um, gets married to Iona Bologna after the near extinction of House Augustus, like we talked about. So, Iona Bologna 
um, marries in marries Nero, right, and is married to Nero in this great celebration. And later that night, he has a package sent to the house of the Bolognas, of which Julius Albolona opens it up and finds the head of his daughter stuffed with grapes. Her mouth At which is point, stuffed with grapes. Well, right, mouth stuffed with which grapes. Her head was, is. It's a portion of her head. That makes it sound like he like dug out her brains and filled it with grapes, which could have happened and would be <laughs> fucking brutal, and I'm in for it. But I don't think that's what it was. Um, that I mean, that's in response to the fact that he was treated well by his family's murderers and like giving grapes because there was no water to keep them hydrated. Mm-hmm. Um, which, first of all, what, why was it fires? I think it was fires. Mm-hmm. Mm. But also, why, why the grape? Look, why is that the thing that you hold on to? And like, it just is the thing that he held on to. Yeah. I don't know. You know, I um, also see this as a perfect cinematic flashback. Oh, the God, it's great. It's amazing. Yeah, it's so this, good. This is an episode in and of itself. Um, um, no, not an episode, but a good chunk 20 of minutes. an episode. A, yeah. A 20 minute chunk of like uh, the middle or even like the first. I'd say the intro. Like, you yeah, do the, cold, the intro cold open into this. Yeah. Uh, it, yeah, you'd have to end on some sort of cliffhanger of, I don't know, Lorne saying something like Lorne saying whatever, whatever, what was the term? Like, I don't know, like, you don't know who your master is or something like that. Yes. Like yeah. the, the right. cliffhanger, like the, the end line the, of the, the clincher moment. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with you. So I think that to wrap up this bit on how Silas and everything else uh, the House of Silas is then eliminated with Lorne, with Octavia planning and plotting to place Nero, obviously, as the arch governor. At this point, Octavia wasn't yet the sovereign, but was the daughter, obviously, of the sovereign five years before the overthrow. And it's just it's a fantastic illustration of both sort of Lorne's indifference and oath to the society and how he's willing to kind of uphold those things. And it's just so fucking good. Like this is, this is so good inside of the story. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's it's ah, God. We just talked about c- cinematography, but like it is one of the most cinematic f- like pieces of storytelling within the book so far. Like I can mm-hmm. I can very happily clearly imagine what this adaptation would look like in. Basically, any way, any way you cut it, it's kind of got to be done in a very specific way. That is basically take it straight from the book and plop it on the screen because it's a, it's that well done. Mm-hmm. You could literally just carve this out and put it on. I totally yeah. agree. Mm-hmm. Gah, it's so good. So another Easter egg, which I want to bring up here, which is kind of a maybe an obscure one. When I was doing my research, generally, I'm able to find some of the Easter eggs that people have caught on uh, the Red Rising wiki or a number of other forums and stuff like that. And this is one that hasn't been recorded anywhere. So I'm excited. Uh, So the Easter egg is Lorne is talking about when Cassius and Darrow were dueling at the gala in the Bleeding Place, in which he talks about the Orencius Folly, which is obviously a three move set inside of Cravat. But it's named after a character from Dungeons and Dragons slash Baldur's Gate, 
named Orencius. And it is a character from BG2. He's a sorcerer. And I just remembered randomly. I was like, I feel like I've heard that name before. And I Googled it. And then I found out that it was in, that it was here. And I was like, huh, that either. I think that has to be intentional. I think it has to be. So anyway, included that here. Shut up, nerd. I've been wanting to get into Baldur's Gate. So that might well, be the new the game thing that pushes sick. me into it. I mean, it's just Dungeons and Dragons in different scenarios. Yeah, that sounds awesome. That's exactly what I want. Right. (laughs) Not saying it's a bad thing. Not saying it's a bad thing. Lauren ends up showing also that he wasn't deceiving Darrow, but lets him in on the trap he's walked into. You know, it's kind of a genuine show of character this whole time. He's been leading him through these conversations. He's aware of the chip and in Darrow's ear as well so that they so that all the people elsewhere understand. Mm -hmm. And he's willing to literally risk his family so as to save Darrow and try to get him off the planet, even though it'll kill all of Darrow's friends because he cares about him so much. I don't know if that's risking his family at all. It is ultimately how, risking how? his family. Would his fa- Aja not go carve is... through his family? No, I don't. Th- I don't think he would. I I think at the very least they would be held. But Octavia it's actually would, it's something. But does anyway? Spoiler. Yes. So well, right. But also, like there, there was the threat of like Darrow talked about it too. Like she'll just come and glass the planet. Like you're you are going to. You know, you're going to be extinguished either way. Um, yes, but it gets into sort of his his decision making later where he still tries to stand like House House Arcos stands apart is after this. Like he he is not trying to involve himself at all. And I think genuinely believes that if he does not involve himself in this conflict, he will have no consequences which would include his family i think i don't i don't think that's how this is read i think he's he's willing to accept minor lashings Mm, for darrow's singular escape the way he was so passionate about his grandchildren later on makes me believe that he never thought them expendable at all all right so so here's a note i think we'll we will have to pick this up after this, because I think that we have a thing to talk about in between here, which is the same reason that Darrow wouldn't kill Aja. So um, we we move into chapter 29, 20, 29, 29, Old Man's Wrath. And man, you can kind of feel the torture in Lorne here as he's as he's talking through not wanting to be a part of this war. After we finally get to know him, he's like, I don't want to be on Aja's side. I don't want to be on Darrow's side because you know, Aja shows up with her Praetorian guard. And, you know, it's it's just it's dramatic. It's different. It's stressful. It's a lot. Mm-hmm. You also see Tectus show up. That dick. That dick. Ah, uh, fuck Tectus, right? Yep. Just kidding. I miss him. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Aja and Tactus uh, face down the Howlers as well, who were called in at the end of the last chapter in, you know, genuine fashion of Pierce Brown, wherein we get all excited for the battle that's going to happen in the next chapter, which is great. But yeah, so they, they kind of draw up, including the new recruits, which Severo held tryouts for, apparently, which is interesting, right? It's mm, kind of funny. I want more of that. I want to see exactly how that played out, because that sounds fucking awesome. Yeah, I feel like that's a quick cutaway, um, kind of Guy Ritchie style, where you just like shoot to it. And like you see like them like doing mushrooms and doing a bunch of shit and like shoving a sh- snake down their throat or something. And then you cut back real quick without like a full explanation. But it'd be just enough to tease it the right way. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, it, it would be good. It's it's so interesting because Lauren wants so nothing to do with this. And we also eventually at the end of the scene 
Darrow truly lets Aja go, despite that being maybe in the best interest of helping Roke and maybe for other reasons, but because he knows that that'll win Lorne's allegiance. And I think that that's another reason to to go into the the sort of kid scenario where if he didn't have to worry about Lorne doing the right thing, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know. I feel like that those two things play together. Yeah. Cause, I mean, cause he's treating, he's treating their children. Right. So like he, he treats Darrow like one of his children. And that's the reason that he's willing to expend that much energy to allow for him to escape. Almost, um, almost though. Yeah. I'd say, I'd say like 95%. He's got the same respect, but I the mean, same, the same amount probably goes towards Aja. Right, right, which is exactly why he doesn't... He's not killing either of them. He's doing his best to stay in the middle, but he is also... I I ultimately think he's not sacrificing his grandchildren here, but he's maybe risking them in a capacity. It might not be Aja who kills them. It It is Octavia, like you said, but it would be... I think he's definitely taking a risk, letting Darrow off the hook. I think he is... But a calculated one. I don't think he truly believes that Darrow would do anything to do to like harm his grandchildren. Well, no, no, no. It's it's not Darrow who's going to harm the grandchildren. It's Darrow escaping and then Octavia taking alms with that and being angry and coming back for Lauren's grandchildren. So outside of Lysander, because Lysander is her heir. Yeah, I guess it's that's a more tough my call. Point. It's a really tough call. Okay. Yeah, I, and I, I agree with you. I think that it's a little bit more complex, but I, I feel like he is making the best call that he can in his situation to preserve all parties. I think Lauren. the fact that he hid the grant, like the children and everybody in the like separate wing in the hidden like trapdoor bookshelf, like the fact that he hid everybody until Daryl was gone, as as far as the intents go, tells me that he probably didn't actually want to be involved in this at all anyway. And he didn't have a choice in that. He didn't have a choice in being involved or being approached. So he's working with what he's got. And this is minimalizing any risk towards his family. Definitely. Yep. So I I don't don't think he's actively choosing to risk his family for any sort of like any sort of well, I, I feel like, like you said, he's minimizing risk. I think there's still yeah. inherent risk in his decision. I think, to given help his, Dara. like, given a choice, I don't think he'd be involved at all. Right, to eliminate but he was risk. Correct. Because he, he, like, he didn't have a choice. He didn't have a choice to be involved. Yes. If mm-hmm. if he had a choice, he would choose not to be involved. But instead, he's directly involved by his two students. Yep. Which is pretty much the worst. He tries to choose to save them both. Right. So, I mean, moving forward, the description. Of the explosion of the Praetorians, right? Because Darrow had dropped oh, the mines so earlier. Good. It's just fucking beautiful, right? So, like, the bomb goes off. They fly into the air. Body parts everywhere. A second bomb goes off or the gravity pulls them back down. Then a third bomb absolutely eviscerates them into, so this, into bits. This is science fiction technology description that I want in general. Yeah, so it's, like, in action. Right? It's in action, um, it doesn't it doesn't go into necessarily the me- mechanics of how a gravity well explosion works, but it's enough to tell you like the process of what happens, 
without leave you, leaving you wanting for more necessarily, but just the the mo- the monologue of the description of how the tiered explosions work of concussive gravity kinetics mm-hmm. and then raining body parts <laughs> and the breaking of the um it's not a jam field but i i imagined it like a jam field it was more of like a physical jam field that was keeping the rain at bay yeah yeah bubble kinetic, bubble yeah. something Bubble field, maybe? Yeah. I can't remember. But the kinetic blast breaking it open and suddenly, like, rain falling. It set the mood. And then Aja and Tactus realize what's going on and they run away, of course. You know, Tactus being partially caught in the explosion. They get launched through the doors. They attempt an escape. There are only three Praetorians remaining. Darrow waits a bit before sicking the wolves on them. Because he, we find out later the reason he waited, despite Rogue's pleading, was because he wanted to ensure that Aja got away. Mm-hmm. And potentially Tactus, but Tactus ultimately didn't, of course. So that was that was a consideration and whatnot. But um which I think makes total sense. I think it makes total sense that he allowed Aja to get away. And that's like something that he's like is being questioned from here to the end of the section. But I don't think there's any sort of world, any sort of scenario where Aja dies. And Lorne agrees to go with him because of what we just talked about, how Lorne is very emotionally attached to his students like family and um, wants to see both survive, even though they're at odds with each other. So allowing Aja to, to escape, one, gets Lorne on his side, but two, maybe in sort of a long game play... <laughs> Gives a sense of valuability to him and maybe gets Octavia to underestimate him a little bit in the future. I think you're right. I I think that it, it plays in all hands correctly, right? It's he's except for except for his allies. Correct. Correct. For his allies, it feels like he's burning them. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. Um, I think this only really comes to light later, you know, in chapter 32, when he finally, when we finally have kind of the discussion of him intentionally letting them go. But I, I definitely am right there with you. So after the explosion and the escape of Aja, we find Tactus hold up with the kids of House Argos. The scene up to that, by the way, of them like crawling around and like racing around the castle, Mm -hmm. like pulling themselves around corners as they're floating because of how light the gravity is, is just insane yeah. to think about. Like, it's awesome. Um, it's just you so cool. You would think that there'd be some sort of technology that would simulate a, a standard either Earth-like or Mars-like gravity in specific buildings. You know, so we know that there is on spaceships, but maybe it's maybe Lorne is specifically selective about it. We learned a little bit about his childhood where he was actually raised out on the moons with very little here. Too. So mm-hmm. it could be just him wanting to instill those same kind of values of this sort of rim culture. So, yeah, no, I, I agree with you, though. I think that you would think that that exists. And I do think it exists in other places. I think we specifically see it on Loon. But yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he obviously chooses not to. But that makes this a very interesting kind of cinematic moment. Um, but we do finally get down into the depths of the dungeon and we find Tactus there with the kids of House Arcos, and that scene is just so fucking stressful. 
the the tension created with that hostage situation that Pierce Brown makes rivals entire films about hostage situations. It just it's so much. Yeah. So films, entire films about hostage situations. The first one that comes to mind is one that I watched in your your three two one phone booth. Phone booth. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I love that movie, and I haven't watched it since then. Like I, I think we watched it twice in one night in your in your parents' basement. I think it was twice in a week, but I definitely oh, agree. Yeah. Either way, it was still like very in very quick succession and i yep. haven't seen it since then because there was nowhere that was streaming it i should look again i own it i bought it yeah because it's so good i probably should i love that movie but at the same time i don't know if i entirely agree with you it's really good sort of setup writing but the actual confrontation that happens seems a little bit i think the best way to describe it is yeah, it's a tough description, but it's a little bit anime. You said that specifically in, in reference to the face turnaround, though, right? Like specifically that I'm talking about yeah. the tension no, no, getting no, no, down no, no, no. in there. Just the entire the entire thing of Tactus standing with his back to Darrow and having this entire full blown conversation and towards the end starting to like look a little bit and give hints of what's happening to his face it, it like that's not how people talk it's just it's just not realistic i feel like and it felt really sort of theatrical for the sake of being theatrical um that said the conversation itself and the things happening around them felt awesome but the the only sort of complaint i have is the fact that he was like a like a super villain cornered standing with his back turned and having a full-blown fucking conversation which first of all if you were in that situation would you just not look at the person coming towards you knowing how capable they are i mean yeah so you said super villain when you started to describe it that way the first thing i thought about is the hostage situation with two-face right in the dark night of which immediately hearkened to me you know that yeah, moment with, with exactly Dent and Aaron same, same deal i also it doesn't feel that different of a scenario to me in my head like it feels like a very similar scenario it is and actually the more that but i think I ha- about that I, it I kind the, of feels I have the same problems with that scene oh man i don't have any problems with that scene but that's okay i (laughs) get it okay that's just a difference of opinion that's cool i feel very stressed out inside of those inside of those moments it does i i definitely get where you're coming from though where it can feel like a little bit comic booky as you as you said it i I stepped away from the anime description comic and it does probably the better way to describe it like as you're looking at the panels and they're away and you're like reading panels and the fourth panel is the reveal yeah, it's I mean, I it's that. not that I have any sort of problem with anime or with comic books or anything like that. It's just that if I if I were to try to see this as a realistic thing, that those sort of theatrics, I don't think play in the same way that they do either in anime or in a in a comic book. I don't think that that cheapens anything that's going on, though, because Tactus himself is so attached to his identity and his beauty and his belief in himself mm-hmm. as this fucking pixie, right? Because he's had to, because he's been bullied for so long. And he's maintained that his image is so important that 
you know, he kind of sits and lingers and lives in that space. So right. he's obviously when his face is fucked up, it's a it's a big deal to him. Good point. I And also Tactus kind of gets back to the theme that the book is centered on frequently where he starts to like break down where it's you know, Darrow's hiding the truth from his friends. And that's why like he yes, he was pulled by the power, the void power that kind of we talked about previously to go with Octavia. Um, but in reality, he just felt alienated. He felt like an outsider, even inside of his inner circle. He didn't feel like he was included. And so that totally made him feel off. Mm-hmm. Push him away. Which, I mean, obviously Darrow feels bad about that. And um, I think we'll see him make sort of a more conscious effort to uh, make all of his close friends feel like close friends. But at the same time, I think it gives him a little bit of hope that these people are are people and have emotional connections. And those emotional connections can drive them to things that they would normally decry. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I think this, despite the tragedy, will kind of give him some confidence. Like, like there's the comment on... If Tactus can, can change, then gold can change. It, it gives him sort of hope for his cause and hope that his cause doesn't have to be fought for alone, that he can he can recruit allies from the gold ranks. He already has Severo, obviously, but maybe it'll give him a little bit more confidence to approach people and be more open with who he is. Selectively, obviously, but maybe with a little bit more confidence. I don't know. You would hope so. You would hope that that would be the the moral or message that he would take from this. So Tactus apologizes, sobbing and upset about his actions. We get more background. We'd obviously known previously about his brothers being abusive and whatnot to him, but we get kind of that that sort of familial disconnect. I'm I'm not saying abusive in terms of the you know like physically or whatever, but I, I I just mean like they were generally degrading towards him in a very negative context as was everyone else in society kind of just bearing down on him forcing him into this image you know just like the the thing with the violin and laughing at him and kind of calling him and thinking him this weak thing and it it created him into this kind of cruel form of person that he didn't want to be and he kind of cries to darrow saying like i don't want to be like this this isn't who i want to be and Darrow kind of comes around to it and says, if Tactus can change, gold can change. They must be broken, but then they must be given a chance. I think that's what Eo would have wanted in the end. So great. It is. And it's a turning point. Uh, Like, like, I mean, this clearly just is what I was just talking about. It bleeds into exactly what I was just saying. But he, he is learning a lot more about who the average gold is as opposed to who the really like publicly speaking high profile golds are golds are like that's not that's not who gold society is and even even with that he's dealing with different sort of ranks within the peerless scarred which are as we talked about a couple episodes ago like 0.3% of gold society as a whole even with even when talking about that small of a sample size which are the elite of the elite he's seeing that sort of gradient 
of thought, of belief, of understanding what golds are and what they should be. And I, I, I think he'd see an even more drastic gradient if he were to talk to non-peerless. Yeah, I, I think that's especially guard. I think that's especially important to point out in relation to, you know, Tactus, because he is arguably the sort of summarily average gold, like what we expect gold to be. He's kind of the He's as as literally mentioned, he is like picture perfect average picture perfect. That's the right word. Yeah, not average, but prototype. I think I think prototypical like what what gold should strive to be right as opposed to just kind of the Joe Schmo gold. Correct. Correct. So thereafter, Tactus finally gives up, you know, after this conversation and everything Drops his razor and surrenders, obviously, to to Darrow and Lorne. The kids start to file out. They're happy. They're excited. They get to live another day, of course, and they're not about to get cut down. It's a good good news for them. And Tactus continues to kind of talk with Darrow a little bit. Lorne comes out of this and says, after everyone has left the room except for Darrow, Tactus, Lorne, now that the children have gone, consequences. And he fucking stabs him in the armpit near the heart four times, drops the dagger, and walks out of the room. Uh, so my initial thought on this was, what did Tactus do to really wrong Lorne here? Like, what what consequence? Like, what actions is he receiving consequences for? But there's Lysander being his grandson, which is a big fucking deal obviously. And also just the fact that he was on the strike force making its way towards killing his grandchildren, even though he didn't do it, it was still an intent. So I I guess it makes sense. But I think there could be a very valid argument that Tactus didn't actually do much of anything to wrong Lorne in general. Because it could be argued that him taking Lysander and jumping out and returning him to the to Octavia, essentially, is taking Lysander out of a hostage situation and bringing him back home. And I think Lorne, more than anybody, should realize that he's going to sometimes get instructions that are against his own personal code of morality. And the fact that he stopped and didn't go through with killing anybody in that situation could be could be seen as a positive in that situation. So like I, I, I would like to uphold a, an argument, maybe not that I necessarily believe in, but that I think is a very valid argument that what that Tactus didn't actually do anything that should have provoked a retaliation from Lorne. So I see where you're coming from or the argument that you're making. And like, I this think... is more of a devil's advocate argument. Like I, I, I understand Lorne's position, but I guess the other part of it is, is like just boiling it down to as close as we can get to actual reality. If, if you 
And and I think this also goes kind of in favor to the argument to some degree, but I think it's a good sort of summation of the situation. If you walked in on someone who had your kids or your family at gunpoint and then talked them down, they drop the gun, they walk out of the room, do you resolve that it's just okay then? And specifically, if you're a soldier, do you not just kill the fuck out of them? Because no, I think no. if you're a soldier, you so, probably just kill the fuck out of them. Right. But if you already know that they are strictly following orders and if they were like truly true to the the orders being given they wouldn't have paused they wouldn't have been just standing there waiting i mean morally compromised people yeah but morally compromised people like people that feel morally compromised and whatever they're doing sometimes take time to like make those decisions that's why you get the shaky hand in the hostage situation right you do but also lauren was in olympic night And we know from our previous conversations that the Olympic Knights, while they are hypothetically there to protect society and uphold the rules of society, are really kind of at the whim of the sovereign. So I'm sure, Lauren. But he's not an Olympic Knight. He was. Right. Lauren was. I guess I was speaking to Tactus. No, he's not. But but I I feel like an Olympic Knight is kind of the, the pinnacle position where this can be applied, where he has to follow orders regardless of what he believes in personally. So I, I, I think from Lauren's perspective, I think it could be easily argued that Tactus maybe acted in defiance of the Sovereign by not immediately going through with his orders. So I definitely like, like the reasoning, but also if that's the case, that could be the consequences that Lauren's talking about. Like th- this is a man who does not have scruples. Like he, he doesn't, he doesn't go through with his orders, but also his individual thoughts are maybe a little bit misaligned. So like, wh- where's the redemption there? Like, I think there's definitely an argument on the other side for like Lauren killing him because he sees oh, that he's sure. so fallible. You know, like, there, like there's just like, okay, there's, there's arguments on, I think, all four sides that I've kind of laid out. I don't I don't know. Three or four. It's definitely not yeah, one mean, or the other. It's not us versus them. Right. Dara thinks he's reclaimable. You know, obviously, it's it's kind of, again, the sort of what I think is really interesting is we're we're pit into this position of Lorne being in a situation where he's got. He wants to be the one out of the situation um, between Aja and Darrow. And then we have Tactus, who wants to be out of his situation where he's indebted to Aja with two other perspectives bearing against him within the same chapter. It's interesting. Uh, Lorne kind of screaming and claiming his that's, freedom and taking action to claim another, his freedom. Yeah, that's a good point. Like, this absolves him from being indebted to darrow for saving his family i don't know if that's true specific well maybe maybe indebted but i think lauren still chooses maybe lauren still chooses though to hmm. are you saying lauren is indebted to no no by by taking oh by killing tactus he is not indebted to darrow for diffusing the situation and deposing of the threat that is tactics. Darrow still did de- defuse did, the situation. But though. yeah, like I said before, it's all about actions and justification of 
like world word of law or word of morality as opposed to actual like intention of morality rules as written versus rules as intended like i said maybe last episode two episodes ago whatever it was um i i think lauren is a very much rules as written kind of person and whatever yeah. loopholes he can find to justify his own morality and sat, sat, justify his own actions and satisfy his own morality, I think is the right way to put it. He'll take, but he won't break the rules and he won't oppose his own morality. So chapter 30, we've got two shorter chapters and then one that we have a little bit more to talk about. But The Gathering Storm is uh, is pretty, pretty funny. Um, you know, it's a, it's a good chapter. It's a good way to kind of lift the mood right after this. We go back to Cavix, and, you know, he is kind of this wily old man, and I love it. His haggle, what a haggle. Sometimes a man needs a good haggle line about, like, the, the ships that they claimed. It's just so good. I mean, effectively, Darrow didn't say anything. He said almost nothing within that haggle. Mm-hmm. They, he, they haggled against themselves. Right, right, right. It's but all also just. landed exactly where Daxo initially set forth. 50% finder's fee. Marked down to 30% for like friendship, and then it went down to 10, and then because Cavax up to 20, and then up to from 30. Darrow, and then up to 30 from from Daxo, and settled on that. Like it, it went nowhere, right? But, but it's, it's just funny. fucking hilarious. It's awesome, yeah, yeah. It's it's just it's just good writing on the side of uh, of of Pierce on uh, Kavix and Daxo. I think it's, it's character building for the three of them and it's great, but the coolest, I think not the coolest, but the most sort of, uh, uh, meaningful conversation here, I think is that of rack Ragnar taking command, which I'm sure you have a question about. Yes. Yeah. So I, that actually is the next question. Um, so Daryl also gets his connections with some like low color friends, this conversation, you know, kind of reemerges with Orion and Ragnar and what was going on with them. Ragnar specifically is maybe the most interesting because he he kind of asks the question of Kavax, like, could we put Ragnar in charge of squads, you know, when, when someone else isn't available to lead? And they kind of go, what? <laughs> well, yeah, like, why would that situation exist in the first place? And Orion mentions that he overstepped, but I think, I think that Darrow could have, um, could have done more to justify what he was saying. Like a covert strike team into the Sovereign's palace of Obsidians and Greys led by Ragnar. In the open, covert, but in the open, that's not something anybody gold could have done or could do, but would be super valuable and super useful to their situation. So like he, he hinted on it saying like, we could send him in somewhere that golds couldn't go. And like, there is no such place, but clearly, clearly there is. And he didn't, he didn't push the matter. And I think if he would have, if he would have done that mm, succinctly enough, I think it could have worked really well for him. But ultimately, I think the fact that he stopped there was probably for the best. He's better at reading the room than I am. Totally fair. 
So I, I do agree with you on in terms of Ragnar and his thoughts on that and just like deciding to withdraw the sort of mention. He was like, well, it was an idea. <laughs> and then just sort of like lets it go. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we move into the next chapter, which is... So I'm, I'm curious, though, because they basically... Like the Telemannuses basically walk away at that point after he kind of gives up on what he was saying. I'm curious if that's going to come back to bite him a little bit. And also, going back to your previous question about about the Telemannuses giving aid to Darrow's true um, goals, I think that kind of squashes that idea a little bit because it kind of shows how entrenched they are in the idea of gold rule, at least from Darrow's point of view. Yeah, yeah, that is interesting. So it is kind of that can they break from the notion of the, you know, Pax Solaris, the the whole compact, um, and how willing are they to do so? I uh I agree with you. I think that's interesting. Hmm. It does kind of paint them into the the sort of questionable corner. So we move into chapter thirty one coop, which is another real quicker coup. Coop. I said coop. 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 It's coup. I know it's coup. My brain said coop. It's coup. It's a stupid coop. fucking word though. Let, let the record show it's stupid. I'm sending you to the Marine Corp. Shut um, the fuck up. <laughs> uh, so I, I like Colin Sanders wants you at his chicken place. Yeah. Try to say lieutenant for me. <laughs> no, because uh, that doesn't work. Anyway, the attempt at stealing the children from the institutes and the academies has failed. Mustang's forces were caught in a similar spiral from Pliny, you know, very similarly to the way that Darrow was surprised, seeking to do damage to the cause so that he might live a longer life and become the Arch-Governor of Mars. Uh, But Mustang, in the end, took his eye for good measure, which is great. Love it. Good stuff. Yeah. Pretty much defines, pretty much defines this chapter. Pretty much. There's, there's not a whole ton to it. Um, No, yeah, this... Pliny's a garbage human. Like he's a garbage. He he is a dumpster. Um, I just like that his eyeball's gone now. Yeah, one less eyeball is a bit, how very Severo of you. Though, does it explicitly say that he is still alive at any point in this in this or the next chapter? All she says so- is she took his eye. Severo says that he looks forward to completing the set, but it's not I, mentioned I think that he's still alive. I, I think heavily implied that he's still alive because he's still plotting and he's sending stuff after them and everything else. So I, I think that it's yes. I don't think it's a question that he's alive. She took his eye for good measure, but that didn't kill him. You know, like I'm then sure why wouldn't the she line. just kill him there? Because she probably couldn't. How how could in what situation is she able to? Take his eyeball, a, a whole goddamn eyeball, and not kill him. Same thing happened to Severo in book one, man. Jumped off cliff, escaped somehow, um, jumped away. That was not like his eyeball was stolen. His eyeball was cut and rendered useless, right? No, his eye was gouged out of his face. Yeah. Uh, I Anyway, d- just getting to the I, point, I'm, I'm having trouble finding, like... Imagining a situation where Mustang is able to take his eye and not able to just fucking kill him. I can very cleanly imagine her grabbing into someone's face, yanking at them, their eye, them screaming in pain, guards stepping up, 
Pliny walking backwards and shuffling out of the room in pain after proposing that she be his strange bride, her eventually breaking out of those bonds and escaping on a runaway ship. That is that is an episode of TV written for you by myself right here, right now. I hate you. You're right. <laughs> like That is exactly how that happens. He, he didn't need to say it because it's so it's so like typical. Um, not ti- I mean, it is the, the way that I described it is typical, but it's so like it's classic to, to a degree. I think that's part of what I like about Pierce Brown's writing so much, too, is he is that he doesn't he the tropes exist because the tropes exist. He doesn't explicitly linger on the tropes. But you can kind of assume that tropes fill in the missing lines, you know? Yeah. It's kind of genius. Yeah, that yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, I got you there. I just want to get dead. Right. Soon. Maybe. I don't know. Hopefully. I mean, Severo is going to collect the set, right? So there's barely anything more to talk about in this chapter. There are two more points that I think are worth mentioning. Uh, Darrow deciding to send Pliny on the wild goose chase from Scyther's The Oranges plan is a great plan, especially considering the uh, thing that, oh, or that <laughs> Mustang flew in on is uh, is likely being tracked or radiated in some way to be tracked. So absolutely ship it out the back on a, or ship out whatever you can on the back of a like probe, send it in the wrong direction, mislead them um, is a great plan. And then I also really like, obviously the entire scene is really centered around the eyeball that's dropped onto the floor and Darrow staring at it for a bit, kind of unnerved Severo later being like, can I, can I have it? <laughs> it's just, I mean, right. it's awesome. Um, but also, solidifies the what it makes me wonder how many gold rulers are willing to hear out the ideas of oranges about their ships like gold seems so arrogant and know-it-all like i i wonder i wonder how many times something like that has actually happened Darrow's starting to come up very democratic in the eyes of maybe other golds who are paying attention, you mm-hmm. know? No, he's not democratic. He said so. Well, he said so. <laughs> hmm. Why would he say something hmm. otherwise? Yeah, no, hmm. absolutely. Like, there's already suspicions from Augustus and uh, voice communications to prove it. Or to back up those claims. So, yeah, I think that's going to be part of his downfall going forward. Part of his it's going to be something hindering his forward motion is his uh, Hmm. compassion towards lower colors. Okay, interesting. Interesting. On to chapter 22, our final chapter here, Die Young. Um, And this chapter is really just kind of meeting and talking with the Praetors that are under Darrow at the moment, trying to figure out their best way out of the situation that they're in. Um, I find it interesting right off the bat in this chapter, perhaps in some other life where men like Lorne didn't, don't exist, you know, Tactus would have lived. Uh, and But Darrow is a man like Lorne, self-described as like him, and described by Lorne as like him, that being the reason that he took him up as a student. So I feel like that also leads us to an end where... Tactus, no matter what, doesn't exist. And I think that also gets into kind of the theme of the chapter that is spoken of where friends are kind of sacrificed 
and Hobbinim for Darrow's goals? Um, so, yes, I think um, Darrow is very much like Lorne in some respects. But I think the the respect that's important to this specific sort of line of actions and line of thoughts is his unrelenting um, personal morals and just inflexible ideas about morality and what actions require what consequences and things like that. Darrow is very clearly much more forgiving about things, which hypothetically would make him not like Lorne in that sense. So it, it would it would take a little bit more context to understand what Darrow is meaning when he says people like Lorne. But I think it could be argued that in this context, Darrow is trying to separate himself from Lorne's personality. And I, I think the argument is valid. I, I don't know that he's trying to separate himself. I, I really think that I'm just I I'm trying to get to I think that there's some irony here that oh, there's absolutely irony. Right. Like, I, I'm not right. trying to say that there's not. I don't, but I don't think Darrow's separating himself in any way, shape or form, though, because in reality, he still continues to choose these things. Right. Yeah. But we've also like we've been able to see those differences. Yeah, I, I guess are we also letting ourselves uh, excuse the rationality for the judgment of the moment? You know, like the, well, this was happening, this was happening, this was happening, Daryl lost a friend, this was happening, this was happening, this was happening, Daryl lost a friend. But Darrow's compacted choices as they went forward have just made it more likely that these things are going to happen, which is, which is not unlike Lauren, I think. I, I just... I feel like that's the read that I get out of it, but um, could, I feel like that is he a... He could also a, just be saying, if people like Lorne and myself didn't exist, Tactus would still be alive. Yes, yeah. Like he well, it I, could be self-pity. I don't, I don't think he's so self-aware that he's making that comment. That's where I'm making that comment, like okay. filling in the gap, where it's like, I don't think he's so... He's not self-aware enough to come to that conclusion. He's already come to the conclusion, though. The, he's already made what? comments about how Lorne took him in as a student because Lorne saw him as being like him. Yes, right, right. What what I'm getting to, PJ, though, is that I think that specifically Lorne and Darrow see each other like there's an equal sign between the two of them, right? But Darrow isn't actually self-aware enough to see himself as Lorne, he isn't willing to admit that he's like Lorne, but Lorne knows that Darrow is like him. So Darrow is unwilling to admit that he actually is a copy of Lorne at this point, and but he's citing Lorne as though he is this this copy, this crystalline image of of him. D- does that make sense? It's, yeah, it's, no, it's it, a, it's a, it makes sense. Um, it's a lot like, from both of ours. Like from both of our perspectives, it's a lot of speculation and I don't think there's really much textual evidence either way. Oh no, this is, this is much more of a thematic discussion than it is a textual discussion. The textual discussion though shows that Lorne thinks that Darrow is like him. We know, we know that for sure. 
Yep, right. I'm saying that's textual. Yeah. Um, yep. It's just whether or not Darrow explicitly thinks himself like Lorne. Right. Which right. I which feel is what like I'm, there were thoughts about that. I feel like there were converse, like internal monologues about that, but I can't recall them off the top of my head at this point. Yeah, I feel like the, they tread they tread the line, but it's it's not strictly there. But yeah, I, I think it's an interesting analysis because I think no matter what, Tactus would have died. And I think that like Roke says later, or like Mustang and Roke both say later, you know, it's one of the bodies can stop piling up. So um, everything costs something to Darrow. Perhaps soon you'll tire of making your friends pl- pay is the line that literally comes on the next page, um, which is, you know, like if we think about it, Leah, Quinn, um, any other number of people kind of being in the way packs, you know, like friends continue to pay and sacrifice for him. And now we add Tactus to the body count. It's, I mean, yeah, I, I can't imagine a better way to put that. Good work, Roke. Mm-hmm. <laughs> for sure. So I, I really think that the story of the Stradivarius, which it's written as Stradivarian, is interesting. We we did a little bit of searching and research beforehand yeah, we, in terms we of the plurals. Um, um, I think it's just an error. Yeah, I think I think it's just a plurality kind of thing, and it's not that big of a deal at all. But I I really think that it's remarkable it's how not, much. But it's not written as plural. It's written as singular. The Stradivarian is how it's written. So yes, it's it's like a past. It's not past participle. No. So like, so my my only thought, if it were technically correct, there is if it was some sort <laughs> of attribution towards the violin it is stradivarian in nature like that sure. that's the only way i can really justify <laughs> that being the correct thing i think it's just kind of an oversight um, yeah which is fine i'm a, like i i grew up playing the cello i'm a l- little bit of an orchestra nerd in that sense um but it didn't it, it did i did notice it but it didn't really bother me that much um one because it's a sci-fi novel and not like historical fiction um so right, there's right sort of the suspension of disbelief in that in this universe maybe it's a slightly different sort of deal but yeah i think textually it's it's not but i i agree with you on the attribute you know being it's similar to a stradivarian or it is a strata you know being an attribute of the violin um i feel like that is the cleanest read i also don't think it's that that big of a deal it's not um it's it it's is early referred as to as a, like right it's earlier referred to as a stradivarius um mm-hmm. so it's it's just interesting here that it's referred to as stradivarian but it's remarkable how much like pierce makes you miss tactus here in like those these two paragraphs you know it's evident that he was trying to change that there was something else here you know i i really feel like the sort of conversation that evolves under this too is is one of the sort of dangerous masculinity identity thing right like being like so unable to talk like the very dangerous like the being so unable to talk about your feelings at all and hiding them and repressing them that you're never truly understood and no one ever tries to understand you and you you bury that to such a degree in which you literally end up in a situation where you get murdered because you took people hostage you know like but he did he is he is well he kind of did no no entirely no no, 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 he didn't he didn't he didn't take anybody hostage he took the kids a, hostage. He t- returned a hostage, and then he went into the same room as some hiding children. He didn't do anything to actually 
take anyone hostage other than no, he being was taking, present. PJ, he was taking the kids hostage just, by threatening them. He didn't do with it. With his razor. He, and he killed three people on the stairs. Oh, that's a good point. Like, he was 100% taking them hostage. They were just... They were just grays and obsidians though they didn't really fucking matter the people who died okay (laughs) yeah i i don't think i don't think there's any read on this situation where it's not a hostage situation Uh, no there's not not a hostage situation because he didn't have them as hostages though and he didn't he He wasn't in a position to like negotiate he very much was in a position to negotiate. And instead of even entering negotiations because but his emotional state. But the negotiation was for his own life. It wasn't for the lives of everybody else. Like, clearly he wasn't in control of the room. Nobody. He gave up the room. He would have killed half of them with a single swing, as it's described on the page. Yeah, but he didn't. It's a, it, it is a hostage situation. There's no there. question. With his razor out. That's like saying, right. yeah, I was just pointing a machine gun at kill- children. <laughs> like, I, I think you it. should be allowed to do that without no. being questioned. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Jesus. No, there's no way. No, that's not a hostage right. situation. Mm, there's no way it, that's it not a hostage would, situation. Yes. I think it would, in almost every scenario, be classified as a hostage situation. But looking at it from... His point of view, I don't think he was ever in a position personally where he was going to go through with it. Oh, I think 100% he would have, he would have, okay, I don't think there's a situation where he would have gone through with it because I think that Tactus is an amendable, emotional person. Yeah. But he, he still sat himself in a situation in which he held them hostage because he was listening to Octavia the Sovereign's orders. So... That's sort of the the gap that I get is he had orders. He followed them up until a point. And the point was where he was pointing the gun at the person's head. Right? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, you're right. And then he just didn't decide to pull the trigger. And then he got killed for it, which, to be honest, when you're pointing a trigger at like 20 kids. Yeah, okay. Like, I'm, I'm not I'm not so much at a loss for your life. We, we can try to rehabilitate you, of course. So I'd prefer that, but... Uh, this uh, is just making you know. me want to watch this is, Phone Booth some more. This um, is war. Um, <laughs> so, but but I think getting back to it, the, the thing that I wanted to talk about is really the sort of... Like, if he would have been more forward with his feelings to begin with, of feeling lonely and isolated from Darrow, as well as Darrow being more forward with his feelings and, and like, general anxieties about anything, about Mustang, for instance. He didn't talk to anyone about Mustang and his stress there. Yeah, they all had to kind of like poke and prod at him and ploy. It, it would have led to a much better, better situation, better communication. And yeah, Tactus would have. would have never been in that scenario where he was holding kids hostage. Yeah. And uh, there's even a comment in this section where he talks about like um, letting the sort of. Oh, God, I can't remember exactly what he says, but he he connects it to Roke. And the way he's been treating Roke as sort of distant and not really paying attention to the friendship. And I think I think it's probably intentional, but it's definitely hindering him, definitely hurting everything about it. Is that? Yeah, that's in this section, right? Where Mm -hmm. Tactus is talking about always being sort of a second thought 
and he says well, something that along was lines that was of, in the last that was in the last section but yes oh, okay because because yeah. now we're in reflection on his death oh right 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 but yeah yeah you know like he he buys the stradivarian stradivarius back um and, and gets that and you know is like learning to play because he wants to present it to darrow again because he's he's kind of proud to be re-emerging and you know kind of getting out of his his like comfortable i don't know drunken inebriated drugged up state just trying you know hard to be a person so it's uh it's interesting for sure so within this scene as well within with all the praetors in the room again um Severo here reminds me of that guy Richie character meaning most of them um <laughs> the one in his, in his movies that play very fast and loose but like know their shit ready to shoot they throw their cards on the table they grab all the chips they walk out of the room you know they just love it I think especially a, a scene that you talked about previously feeding Sophocles with like a chicken leg <laughs> you know, he like takes a bite and then he throws it on the table and like kind of Sophocles kind of picks at it and plays with it, kind of laughs and says something to him. Also, like Sophocles is described like a f- like a fox, and the way like the interaction makes him seem like a normal sized fox, but it's also described that he's basically the size of a fucking wolf, um, which just tells me how much of a towering behemoth of a man Cavix is right right all of these people are so incredibly big with the exception obviously of Severo I mean yeah you know also Which, a joke that Victor made it I think right now is that she was like she called her uh Mustang like a little girl he's <laughs> Severo's short for golds but if I remember right he's like basically my size right no you're thinking Darrow is your size little bit taller yeah uh, Severo is like i'm i'm literally looking it up right now he's got to be like noted well over six four no he's five nine. Oh shit yeah so he's tiny he is a little dude yep that's shorter than you i didn't know people were shorter than you oh fuck off <laughs> um <laughs> but yeah Dar- darrow is seven one um right. so taller than you but yeah so I think Mustang is as tall as you, but yeah. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So like Darrow's small. So Sophocles is a big deal. Like Sophocles is like an average, you know, bigger dog. And Severo's the tiny guy in the room. Comparable to a wolf at one point. Mm-hmm. I remember that specifically. He, he is a fox, but he's comparable to a wolf, which speaks to him just being able to be like swallowed by Cavax's size. You know, like it's, it's interesting. Right. We also get a lot of politicking here around Victra, whether or not she's truly a good person or another potential spy. Yeah. Roke factors into it. And I think it really gets back to the theme of this book so far. Like we talked about and we talked about throughout this episode, which is really trust and the nature of trust. I was really annoyed with this section up until the point where Roke interjected. I was I was basically thinking to myself like, We've had this conversation before. We've talked about her bloodline. We've talked about other people's bloodlines. We've talked about how she is not her family. She's not her sister. She's not her mother. I think she said that to Darrow a lot. We've talked about it a lot we, for sure. Okay. But, but, but like she said it to Darrow a ton. You know, it's definitely been made a point. And it, Roke made nothing but great reasons for why they should trust her and i personally i do trust her i think um 
does she go she doesn't go by julia does she she does i mean it's victor no. julia her sister does not then Antonia does uh, not. She's got a she's got a half sister. Yeah, Antonia's a half sister. Right, but she doesn't go by Julii, even though she's kind of beholden to the Julii name. I I think it was Severus Dash Julii, Severus Julii. No, yes. there, there's there's a conversation early on where it says like she doesn't even call herself Julia. I I I can't remember. Anyway, it might be the other sister, but I don't think so. I think she's done more than enough. To prove that if she were going to betray them, there were ample opportunities, like golden opportunities to do so. And she didn't. And like she's she should be trusted, I think, at this point. Yeah, I I definitely agree with you. I think that there like there's no reason to it not. felt very witch hunty in their in their conversations about it. It felt very Monty Python talking about the witch. I I agree with you. Burn her, burn her. She has got a wart. She has got a wart right there. Um, yeah, I, I totally I totally agree with you. I think that the tough part here is that, you know, Roke steps up and he finally makes his, his stump speech about the quality of people and measuring people by their parents as wrong and incorrect, the mm-hmm. wrong way to do it. And uh, I, I think... I think it's very interesting. So we end this chapter with uh, with giant questions. We take back the fleet, then Mars. What? I mean, that's it's pretty straightforward plan, man. Like, I don't know what your questions are. I mean, step one, yep. take fleet. Step two, take Mars. Good plan. Step three, profit. Yep. Good. <laughs> Good plan. So with that... We're going to roll into your predictions. We've got three this week. Um, So we've got three questions. That's it. Uh, So rapid fire. Who's killing Pliny? Oh, Severo. Severo will complete his collection and it'll be very, uh, very Yu-Gi-Oh like of uh, (laughs) left eye of Pliny, right eye of Pliny, pot of greed, which allows him to play multiple more cards. Tongue of Pliny. I I don't remember Exodia. Exactly. You're going for body parts of Exodia. Yeah. It's like left arm, right arm, the, head, the, left leg, right leg. But yeah. The face of the face of Pliny <laughs> as the Exodia. I don't That's remember exactly how Yu-Gi-Oh works. I know Pot of Greed let you play more cards. I think it lets you draw more cards. Oh, is that what it is? Yeah. I don't I think it's draw three. I don't I don't remember, man. Yeah, it's okay. It's okay. I don't blame you. Anyway, uh, yeah, Severo is going to just brutalize Pliny's face. Okay, okay. So what is the second question? What could possibly be up Darrow's sleeve? Well, his arms, of course. Yeah, we we both acknowledge that this question is shit and that we're not going to talk about it ever again. Mm -hmm. I wrote it down in a haze when I was done. It is, it's draw two cards. I wrote it down in a haze when, uh, when I was done with the rest of the notes. And I was like, what are good? Like, there are things to talk about. Like, there's a lot to talk about going forward. But I don't, I don't know. Where What's did, up Darrow's sleeve? His wh- arms. Wh- where did the king keep his armies? In his sleeveies. Yeah, That's <laughs> all I thought of when reading that question. So You just, like, dad joked me. That hurts. Mm-hmm. Okay. So uh, third question. Third and final question. 
because the second question is going away. Really, it's the second question. Darrow makes a note earlier about letting Aja escape. Why does he let her live instead of capturing her? I think we talked about this a little bit, but I we did. I think um, for the sake of Lorne, because I I don't think Darrow could have killed Aja and maintained any sort of alliance with Lorne. I, I think I think Lorne would have, as we said. Lorne is a, a man of his word and takes his word as bond and all of that. And I think if one of his students were cut down in front of him, I don't think he would side with whoever did that, even if it is another one of his students. So I, I think the only way to get Lorne involved in this war is to let Aja go. Fair. Okay. That's that's an interesting extra question you just answered there. Yeah. <laughs> In addition to the other one. Cool. All right. So then next week, we are going to be reading through chapter 39, which is the end of part three. So you're going to read all the way through to the end of the conquering or conquer. Conquer. So that's where we'll leave you for this week. Uh, for us, the most important thing that you could do is if you could refer us to any friends, anything you can help do to grow and refer us, we really appreciate it. Otherwise, leaving an Apple podcast review or a review on your platform of choice or subscribing, all of those are very impactful. We'd appreciate it greatly. Yeah. Uh, beyond that, other than just kind of interacting with us on our social media, reviewing on whatever podcast media of choice for you is uh really really important for getting those podcatchers is that how you call them podcatchers podcatchers uh to recommend us to other people so i don't give a shit about reviews in general like I, i i really don't i don't look at them i don't care about them but i do know that a high percentage of five-star reviews gets us recommended to more people. So I will show myself and ask (laughs) for you to do that. Our reviews are important. We generally don't care. We read and watch awful shit that gets like two, two stars on Rotten Tomatoes. One of my favorite movies is the toxic Avenger by trauma films. I love it. It is like, oh, by all counts and by my own count, it is a one star movie, but I fucking love it. But that said, nobody's getting recommended the Toxic Avenger. Outside of you recommending it right now. I will. I will recommend it. Um, Apparently there's a new series coming out based on it, which I am super pumped for. Anyway, maybe that was a troll from one of our friends, but First things first is word of mouth. If you've got a friend that would like the show, tell them about it. But if you don't, give us a good review and we'll be forever grateful. Beyond that, interacting with us on social media is always a fun time. Um, We truly do pay attention to it. We just got some private messages from some listeners and like I genuinely recognize them as somebody who had been liking some of our content. So I talked about that in our message back. It's, it's heartwarming. It's great. It's wonderful. It's a lot of fun. And, um, I love 
all of you that interact with us. So keep it up. Yeah, it's great. You can also check out our recipes for our cocktails on our website. We are getting slowly better at this, and you may in the future see uh, short-form video content on Instagram, eventually maybe long-form on YouTube. Yeah, uh, I think it, it'll be a great outlet for us to show you how we're making what we're making and how we're doing it. Look forward to that in the future in 2021. We're very excited for the new year. And thanks so far for listening. I mean, it's absolutely a big deal. Like PJ had said, it's, you know, it's been a hell of a year. I know this is going to come out slightly after the new year, but still, you know, I, I can't help but be very grateful for the situation we're in recording this shortly before the new year. So we'd love, we'd love to hear your suggestions, opinions, and look forward to running an audience question at the end of these episodes at some point. We appreciate each and every one of you for listening. Have a great week and see you next week. Thank you.